Welcome to Investor's Coffee Shop, where your host, Brian Hart, Adam Elterhuni. I have been working in the financial industry for over 18 years. I started in New York City and in 2010, expanded my business to Alexandria, Virginia. For over 25 years, I've been gaming and investing in collectibles. I grew up in Georgia and in 2017, moved to Washington, D.C. Investor's Coffee Shop is for people who want to learn more about investing, make better decisions, create new streams of income. In each episode, we will discuss investing in art, wine, collectibles, stocks, bonds, real estate, and anything else that may generate a profit. Join us at Investor's Coffee Shop. Welcome back to Investor's Coffee Shop. Today, we'll be discussing the different types of trust accounts that are available. This is a three-part series. In the previous episode, Understanding Trust Accounts, we discussed the different parts in a trust information you need to know when thinking about opening a trust and understanding the terminology that is used. Today, we will be discussing the details in revocable types of trust. Adam, I'd like to say welcome back and how have things been since the last time we spoke? Thanks, Brian. It's been great. So just been hanging out, enjoying the weather. Nothing too exciting happening? No, went to a music festival in Atlanta a few weeks ago. That was probably the highlight. Thinking about investments, I decided a few weeks ago to throw up the money and buy a Salvador Dali piece of art. And Salvador Dali has always been a big hero of mine growing up. I've always loved his art. I used to have his posters all over. So now to actually own a piece of Salvador Dali's past is quite amazing. Now, I didn't buy a painting because that would be 25 million plus, but I did buy a lithograph, which was signed by him in pencil and limited in number. And after I did that, I was doing some research on Pablo Picasso to invest in one of his pictures, came across an ad on eBay that was mislabeled. The person said this was an original Pablo Picasso hand drawing, but you can get those for relatively inexpensive, and he was selling it for $375. After looking at it last week, I realized I know this picture. I've seen this in my Dolly books. It was a Salvador Dolly hand drawing that he did Don Quixote. So I bought it for $400 with the gamble knowing that it's not what it says in the listing, but eBay guarantees my money back. If it does come back as a Pablo Picasso, I can say, well, that's not what was advertised or vice versa. So I felt like this was a risk taking. I got the item yesterday, opened up the frame and lo and behold, it was a Salvador Dali and it had markings in Paris and in Spain. And it was a drawing that he did. This could possibly be an original Salvador Dali that was used for the etchings in the lithograph. I have dropped it off at my local art gallery. They're actually inspecting it, trying to verify the information. So that is what's happened to me this week. That's an incredible find. Going to the lithograph, is it a certain art you like, or was it just a piece that you wanted to obtain? At that time, it was the first one I had seen come public. And i such a fan, I didn't care what it was. As long as it was his, I was going to buy it. But interesting enough, it was on Saturday, the day before Easter. It's uh, Mary Magdalene and Jesus Christ rising from the grave. So I bought the resurrection of Jesus on Easter weekend. And it's a beautiful piece. Before we introduce our special guest, let's go over some basic information about trust as a quick reminder. The trust account is a legal arrangement in which a trustee holds and manages assets on behalf of a beneficiary or beneficiaries. Trust accounts are commonly used for various purposes, such as estate planning, managing funds for minors, charitable giving, and protecting assets. Remember, the information provided here in this episode is for general information purposes only and not legal advice. And trust laws can vary between jurisdictions. 
It's essential to seek professional advice and consult local regulations when establishing or managing trust accounts. And today we have Chris Hanks back with us. His motto is the practice of law at its heart is about protecting people and solving problems. And his areas of expertise are probate administration and advisement, estate planning, trust creation and administration, special needs planning, elder abuse litigation, Medicaid planning, guardianships, and conservatorships. He started his practice to help people prepare for the future, protecting their families, establishing, growing, and to protect their businesses. Chris, thank you for being back with Investors Coffee Shop again. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be back. And today we're going to focus on revocable accounts, not irrevocable or other ones, mostly revocable and a few other side note, smaller types of trust accounts that you can do. So Chris, explain revocable trust accounts, how they work, and who should be opening a revocable account. The revocable trusts are by far the most common type of trust see out there. Think of a revocable trust as a separate legal entity, Brian, that you set up and you are the trustee and your charge in this document is to benefit yourself. You are making a contract with yourself to take care of yourself with what's in the trust. The best benefit of this is one, it's very easy to manage. The Supreme Court has ruled that you have a constitutional right to put your private residence, you know, your home that you live in, your primary residence into a revocable trust. No one can stop you. You are working for yourself. So the only person who can sue you in this arrangement is yourself. You still keep your home interest mortgage deduction. You still pay your property taxes the same way. It's a very simple arrangement. And then when you pass in this trust document, it says, if I ever pass, then this is what happens to the trust. It can be almost within the only bar being public policy. It can be anything that you want it to be. I want the house to be sold immediately. Funds distributed this way. I want the house to keep it and I want my to be rented out and the income to go to my children. I want it to be successor trustee's choice entirely. You know, unwavering, no, nobody can question it, but they, they know what is best. So within that, there's a lot of other sort of places that we can go, but a, a revocable trust is the, the most common type of trust. And it is something that I generally recommend to families who are looking to avoid probate if the worst happens and to take care of their family after they're gone. So in essence, you're saying... You're not really having a lawyer manage it or somebody outside. You yourself are the one managing everything. You have complete control, of revocable trust. Absolutely. You can change it. You can make any changes you want. You can, you can destroy it at any time you want. Nobody can question it or do anything else. How do you make changes if you decide to make changes in it? It's an amendment, a simple document that essentially you slide underneath trust that says, as of this date, the name of the trust is X or Y, or the remainder beneficiaries have changed to these people, or this person has been added as a trustee or the successor trustee. Very simple process. And then what type of person should do this and which type of person should not? The biggest drawback for the type of person that should not do this, the biggest drawback is this provides you no creditor protection. Creditors, if you get sued, the house still belongs to you same as, same as it does before. The other thing that does is for Medicaid purposes does not provide any help in Medicaid purposes. Now, that can vary state to state. The Commonwealth of Virginia, where I practice the majority of my practice, your private home is never part of your Medicaid estate anyways. Not calculated for a state, but that changes it throughout New York, California, wherever you are. Think about that. But it legally terms if the, wor if the worst does happen and you need long-term care or you get sued for a lot of money. The, the biggest drawback is that it does not protect you in those instances. So, and so the person the, who should be looking for it would be a standard family. You have a couple of kids, 
you have seen someone, your friend, you know, when their parent died, they went through the year of probate and it was back and forth and back and forth and they had to pay an attorney and then things went bad and they were in court and it was a nightmare. This entirely avoids that process. And as I've said before, as I said on our last one, a trust can outlive you. So you can say, I am going to, I manage this trust right now for my own benefit. When I die, I want you to sell the house and then I want you to distribute $10,000 a year to this person or until all the money is gone. Whereas if you just left it in a will, all you're doing is just leaving them the house to do whatever they want with or all of a bunch of money in a lump sum. So who's doing the payments? So if you say, I only want them to get 10000 a year, and that means you're not self-managing it, somebody else is coming in. So who's that person? You would need a successor trustee. It could be an attorney. It could be a, just a, a person that you trust uh, anywhere else. But the thing is, once a revocable trust, the way I write them at least, once a revocable trust, you, you set up a revocable trust. Once you pass, the trust then cannot be changed. It then becomes irrevocable and no changes can be made. And the trustee then just has to follow the trust instrument itself, what the instructions in there are. So it's careful drafting, especially once we get into the irrevocable portions of this. Careful drafting and trying to see around corners is vital. And there are, are there certain assets you cannot put in there? You're like, no, this is not acceptable. Generally, no. Again, the only the only bar is public policy. I Even with my revocable trust, I do something uh, that works in the Commonwealth here called an assignment of personal property. So, you know, your couch doesn't have a title. Your matchbox car collection that isn't worth anything doesn't have a title. But you, you then have a document that says, it's my intention that all of my personal property goes into this trust. So it can be, it's a, you know, a presumption if you then, if there's then a question, you can then take that to a court and say, this person clearly intended to put all of their personal property into the trust and it should be distributed. Has it happened in your industry to where the person passes away, they've chose a beneficiary, but that beneficiary also passed away? What happens to the next step after that? Absolutely, though, that, that is more common than you would think, and it's very, very sad when it happens. But at that point, what you do is go to a court. And in Virginia, you go to a court and you file something that's called aid, you know, aid and assistance, which is essentially just a motion where you're saying to the court, these are the facts. I've got this trust. It says to go to this person. What do I do? Generally, unless there's something else going on, the court will say, then just distribute it as though he had died in testing. You could have the, the brother that he hasn't talked to in 30 years, but is his only living relative, then distribute it to that person. Absent instructions. And generally, in my, in my trust, that's how I draft. I say, if everybody that I have named is no longer living, then give it to whoever would have gotten it had I died in testing. Or if the person has a cause that they really support, you just call the remainder beneficiary. I want it to go all to the charity. And how often do people lose charities for them to inherit everything? Inherit everything? I, I, I've done it twice. Uh, mostly people who don't have any other family. Going into the different types of revocable trust, what other variations are there? There are a ton of different variations. The, the one that uh, I tends to get like the most, you know, isn't this weird kind of thing, would be what's called a purpose trust. And purpose trusts are for pets or anything else. So I'm going to set aside a million dollars so that my little Chihuahua pickles, a little old Chihuahua can live in the lap of luxury. Should I pass? And the trustee then just, you find somewhere for the dog to live, uh, someone that will take care of it, provides for all veterinary expenses. Uh, that dovetails nicely into another type of trust that's called a funeral trust. This can be a very nice kind of trust that you start for, for yourself that is sets aside money and very explicit instructions on your funeral, how much it's going to cost. Money's there. The instructions are there. You just need someone to, to implement it at the end. And any reputable funeral home can help you with this. 
You don't need an attorney for this. Go to the funeral home. Tell them what you want to do. They deal with this a lot. It's a very it's a very nice thing to do, I feel, for your for your decedents. Not for your decedents, but your your beneficiary, your family afterwards, so that all of that stuff is completely taken care of and they just implement it. And that type of trust is called the funeral planning? Well, the funeral trust. Funeral planning trust. So pretty much that handles the cost of cremation or burial, headstones, whatever you may need. It's all done so when you do pass away, the remaining family members have to worry about nothing. It's all taken care of. 100%. And it's, it also gives what I think is the nicest thing you can do, which is explicit instructions on what you would so that nobody is wondering. No, he would have liked flowers or he would have liked something simple or he would have liked a big blowout with a big party afterwards. They know it. It's in writing. They know exactly what you want. And it's already paid for. They just sort of need to let the funeral home. Does the funeral home set this up with you? or do you- It does, yeah. The funeral home, because the funeral homes, this is relatively common, so the funeral home will have a sort of larger trust. There are trusts throughout the country that do this for across several states to pay in whatever the funeral home sort of talks about. It's say, just so I can work with comically round numbers, $10,000. You give them $10,000, they will guarantee you that when anytime, anytime you pass away, this is the funeral you will get, even if the cost in 20 years is 15000 Because what they've probably done is invested that in this funeral trust, put that $10,000 into this funeral trust, and it has grown for them. And so the rest of the money is there to pay for 15000 you're protecting yourself from inflation and everything else. Yeah. Didn't even know that existed. How often do people set these up? Not as often as they should, but I would, yeah, I would, this is not something you need an attorney for. I would call if there's a, a funeral home that you like, I would call them. They can absolutely run you through it. It's not a, you know, it's a contract, but it's not, you don't need to set up your own trust. They can do it for you, but they can be a real help to the family in the grieving process that all of that has already been taken. Then going into a charitable remainder trust, what is that and how does that work? It's not unlike what you said. It's, uh, I want to set up a trust for Brian's benefit and put everything Brian owns into it. At the end of when Brian passes, I want someone who is just going to give a charity of my choice or, or three or four charities of my choice, $15,000 a year in perpetuity until all the money is gone. You do that for a couple of reasons, especially if they're small. I recommend this one. They're small charities. There are a lot of charities who have experienced times when suddenly they get this big grant of $1.5 million and it Here's the place. Nobody knows what to do with 1.5 million, nor would I in a lump sum payment. Uh, it can help a lot. And then it's the big difference between there. It's not just a remainder where you're like, if everybody I know, everybody's named in this is dead, then this charity gets it. This sort of keeps it going. And the, the bet is that if you pick the right trustee, that they can, let's say there's a million dollars. Again, I like working with comically round numbers, that they can invest it and keep that $10,000 per annum going longer than if you just gave it to the organization. So charitable remainder. Uh, not unlike a trust, this just is how you write it in the beneficiary section of what you want to do. You recommend churches too, as well, because absolutely. Is there any different types of charitable organizations you would say you should probably just stay away from? None, you know, as long as they are legit and you think that they're doing a good job. I mean, that is really the the beauty of a trust. It can be whatever issue you think is the most important. Uh, make sure it's a, it's an honest charity and that it's a tax exempt charity, and so it has to run through those hoops. But no. In your experience as an organization, let's say they're going to inherit a million dollars. It's set up to where they get 50000 per year until it's completely depleted. Have they ever come back and said, can we get the whole million dollars now? They have really, that can be done. So once a trust becomes a, what's called a remainder trust, which is the person who set it up, Brian has passed. The only people who are left are the person who's running it now and all the beneficiaries. 
you can, if all the beneficiaries and the trustee agree, you can go before court and say, we all agree that we're just going to dissolve this trust and distribute all the assets. Generally, unless there's some public policy reason, the court will allow that, especially if all the beneficiaries If one beneficiary doesn't agree, or if the trustee says, no, this is not what we're going to do, then it's very hard to get a court to agree. But there, there are vehicles where if everybody just says, look, we all just want the lump sum payment. I don't want this 10000 a year. The trustee says, the trustee, it's not going to be a big money maker. The only thing you're doing is cutting multiple checks for $10,000 a year, putting it probably in an index fund. Going from there, so generally there are ways to dissolve the trust with the agreement of all parties. And reading about them, this is really good to avoid taxes, am I correct, for charitable donations? You don't have to pay any state, federal, or any inheritance tax? It removes the charitable deduction that you could have made during your lifetime, taking the tax deduction on that. Yeah, revocable trusts don't offer a ton of tax advantages. Another thing, because again, the house is still presumed to be yours. Any income is presumed to be yours. It's kind of the LLC of trusts. That it's all, it just sort of winnows down to you anyways. It just makes things easier and cleaner. And going into outside of charitable, we have a special needs trust. Special needs trusts are very interesting. They are their own sort of subset of what I do. There are people who only do special needs planning. So special needs planning is done when you know that a beneficiary that you want to help after you pass, is receiving government benefits. SSI, is uh, Medicaid is the much, much more likely they need long-term care. They're in a Medicaid facility. You know that if you give them $250,000, going to completely drop them out of Medicaid. Whoever is, is helping them will be able to get them into a very nice facility for a year. And then after that year, all the money is going to be gone. They're going to be back on Medicaid. They're going to have to reapply and show the spend down. And it's going to be, it's not going to help them in the way that you want. So. You set up a special needs trust that says this trust is for the benefit of this person, but they have zero say whatsoever over how the money is spent. My intention that they not be kicked off of any government help that they're assisting because of this trust. It then gives the trustee sole responsibility and the sole discretion to supplement that person's life. So their person is in a Medicaid home, they can buy them a new TV. They can pay for their physical therapy. They can pay for someone to come in and visit them. They can do anything. The, the difference is that at no time is any money given directly to the recipient. They're not given a card that they can use to do X or Y, or if they are, it's maybe $100 a month. Very small part. But the trustee then does every, every dollar they spend is for that other person's benefit, helping them so that they can stay in their home but have an, have an increased better way of life. These are... Very, very good. These are very useful. These are often done uh, the way that I write wills and the way I write trusts. I put in there that if little Tommy, who's my son, if he gets everything at 25, unless he has something has happened, he is getting government benefits. He's in long-term care, something like that. Then I want it to be a special. Give the executor or the trustee, whatever that trust, the authority to go in and say, no, we're going to make this a special needs trust, rather than just giving this kid a that becomes interesting uh, once we get to things like spendthrift trusts. Spendthrift trusts are irrevocable trusts that we'll probably talk about later, but they're like special needs in that they don't give the beneficiary the right to compel any payments. Beneficiary at no time has time to say, Noah, you're going to give me this money now. In the discretion of the person, but it has to be any money spent does have to be for their, their benefit. This is done uh, for creditor protection because then if Little, you know, Tommy is now 30 years old and likes to play the ponies or goes into risky business ventures and owes a bunch of money to creditors. They can't go after the trust to satisfy their claim. 
you think someone's going to be bad with money. The only time that they can get to it is if I make $1,000 into Tommy's bank account, they can go after that $1,000. We still have the entire corpus of the the trust in there too. And so the trust could then buy a rent Tommy an apartment. The trust signs the lease and the trust pays the rent. The trust pays the utility. And so Tommy's always got somewhere to to live. that can't be taken away from him, but the creditors can't stop him from being. That's a spendthrift type trust. Medicaid asset protection trust. Get Medicaid, you have to be in a certain lower income bracket to qualify for that. If you do have a house and you do have a bank account because your parents had these things and you inherited these things, this trust will protect them from denying you Medicaid because of the trust. In the in the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, which is what I'll use for il- illustration purposes here, you can have for long term care. You need a nursing home. You have been you're very disabled and you need a nursing home. Nursing homes can run. The worst could run $12,000 a month. The hope is to, to apply for Medicaid. And the way Medicaid works in a very, very global sense, it's very complicated. But the way Medicaid works broadly is Medicaid says, okay, we're going to look at everything you own. You have to own less than $2,000 worth of stuff. That's a tributal. That's a countable expense, a countable asset. And then whatever your income is, you're going to pay all of that income to the nursing home. We will cover the rest. Instead. Nursing home will provide you all your medical care, provide you food, take care of you. Uh, until you pass, so they they're all there. You will always be well rested and taken care. Of. You put stuff into a Medicaid asset protection trust to put it in there, separate it from your estate legally, and make it not counted for Medicaid purposes. I see this most often when someone, God forbid, has a diagnosis of a degenerative disease, Parkinson's, ALS, and they know that at some point in the future, you are go. They are going to need. They they will no longer be able to stay at home need this kind of stuff, and they don't want everything that they own to be part of Medicaid, and they have to spend down. Now, this is narrow because in Virginia, your, your, your residence is not part of your countable estate. The home that you and your family live in, will not be, you don't need to put that into a Medicaid asset protection trust because it will, be, it will never be part of your estate for Medicaid. You would put secondary homes uh, collectible into a Medicaid asset protection trust. And all of this with the proviso that... Virginia has a five-year look-back period. So from the date you transfer it in, the clock starts ticking. And if you don't need Medicaid within five years, you know after five years, if you then need Medicaid, you're good. Because anything in the Medicaid Asset Protection Trust is not going to be part of your state. It can all stay where it is. You've got the ability. You can't, you know, a part of that deal is you sign it over to somebody and you don't, you can't compel them to do what you want with it. But again, that's how careful drafting. Because if you say that you're going to, manage this and it's only going to be for this or it's only going to be for me, only then every expense out of that trust other than cost of the trustee has to benefit the person has failed in their job and can't do that. And they refuse Medicaid trust? Let's say this person inherited you know, a rare art or a car and Medicaid goes, look, you could just sell XYZ and pull in a million dollars. Why do you need this? They can because Medicaid Asset Protection Trusts have to follow very stringent regulations, both at the state level and at the IRS level. And what you have to do when you're saying, I'm going to apply for Medicaid, they will ask you, is there some trust out there? You have to give them the trust document so that they can review it. They can make sure that it, it meets with these, you know, check that it, the boxes are checked. They're also within Medicaid Asset Protection Trust and Special Needs Trusts. There are companies that do pooled trusts that I highly recommend. For, especially for special needs trust, because keeping someone off Medicaid, if you make one wrong transfer that you think is okay, and it's not, they could lose their Medicaid. Then you're scrambling, then you're paying a lot of money, and you're trying to get them back. 
And it gives you the, as I'm sure as an investment person, as you can, as you can tell your clients, we can pool everybody's money into this big pot and invest it. Rising tide is going to lift everybody up. We're going to have, some, have much more scale than we would otherwise. And then thirdly, because the people who work for these special need pooled trust companies do this all day, every day. And then just functionally too. So you have to give your social security that oversees federally oversees the Medicaid program. You have to send them the trust. Well, these pooled trust companies send over 50 trusts at a time. Social security is just like, okay, you know, these are good. They're not going over the plan to come. They don't have the ability. So there's a lot of benefits you get from using a pooled trust. And they are scattered all over. There's there's a lot here in Northern Virginia, but they're all over the all over the place. Is there any other types of uh, trust accounts that we're missing out that are within the sector? There's something called a Totten Trust. T-O-T-T-E-N. That is an underutilized service where that with a bank that uh, you have a bank account. There's just money sitting in there. You can name what's called a pay on death beneficiary. That once you pass, all this person has to do is show their ID and your death certificate and the bank account becomes theirs. Bypasses probate. It is instant and drops like a rock. It's called a Totten case because of a Supreme Court case that said that this is allowable and can bypass probate. That is a very good way. If you're really your only asset is just money in a bank account, you can do this pay on death beneficiary. Now, the only downside of that is you can't do what I would call if and beneficiaries. So it's going to be, I'm going to leave it to Brian Hart. But if Brian Hart is gone, then I'm going to leave it to someone else. The bank's not going to let you do that. They're just going to let you go one level down because otherwise they're like, we listen, we, and then we're tracking people down and they're being nice at doing this anyway. Insurance companies, they have riders that go added to your term insurance or whole life insurance. Do trust counts like these, do they have riders you can add to them as well? You can really. The only limit on any on a revocable trust really is public policy. Can't say it if I daughter marries someone of a different race. She doesn't get any. Can't do that. Thank God. Uh, other than that, it's it, the trust can outlive you, and you can structure them almost any way you want. It's the best way to plan your future and have the most control over that. Well, I'd like to thank Chris Hanks for speaking with us today. What is the best way for people to reach out to you and learn more about your company and setting up trust accounts? Look for me at www.hankslaw.org, O-R-G. My direct uh, phone number and my direct email address is on there. I look forward to reaching out. And if you have any other questions that we didn't get to, please reach out to us at InvestorsCoffeeShop, gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thank you for listening. for listening if you enjoyed this episode hit subscribe like and leave us a review don't forget to follow us on facebook instagram linkedin and twitter we will see you next time at investors coffee shop